even Zerubbabel models. Probably. Yeah. Yes, even Zerubbabel. Even Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Built the temple up from the rubble. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's true. He and Nehemiah. Nehemiah. He was just slightly taller than Bildad the shoe height. Okay, that sounds like the title of a country song, you know. Zerubbabel yes. built the temple. I'm up distracting from the you again. I apologize. I I I know, but that's uh that's my lot in life. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of On the Journey. Bet you can't watch just one. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my esteemed colleague, Ken Hensley, and we're with the Coming Home Network. If you like what we're doing here, or even if you just want to follow it because you can't look away, click the subscribe button and check us out at chnetwork.org. Ken, how are you? I'm doing really good. I'm excited to be back together with you and uh, launching another episode. And I apologize for comparing you to potato chips there in that intro, but you know we do what we do. Let's talk a little bit more. People are thinking that uh, we are we are just on this dead horse, but let's talk more about Sola Fide. And we did this uh, kind of with Sola Scriptura, this whole seven step process. So mm-hmm. kind of lay the foundation for what we're going at and trying to understand your own process of coming to realize that Sola Fide isn't really the whole picture. Yeah, what I've been doing in this series is I've been telling the story of how I came to abandon the Reformation doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone, to embrace what serious Reformed-minded, Reformation-minded Protestants still take to be a damning system of works righteousness. That's the title for the series. That is the Catholic doctrine of justification. That's what they mean by you know a damning system of works righteousness. Luther described justification by faith alone at the time of the Reformation as the article upon which the church would stand or fall. Calvin referred to it as the hinge upon which the door of all true religion swings. And Matt, to this very day, um, Protestants, especially those who are more Reformed-minded, have a hard time uh, conceiving, really, that anyone could be a true Christian who rejected this doctrine of justification. So obviously then, coming to the conclusion for me that this doctrine of was unbiblical and that it was unhistorical was quite a step for me as a Protestant, as a Baptist pastor, and it was a key step in my own conversion to the Catholic faith. And a scary step. Let's not underscore that enough, because my goodness, uh, when I came to this point that you're about to talk about, and you came at it from a Reformed perspective, I came at it from a Wesleyan mm-hmm. Arminian perspective, I thought that to say that faith alone does not save you was like me saying that faith doesn't matter. I mean, that's the, that's how I, it yeah. felt for me to be saying it. Or, you know, I had a similar you know feeling when we talked about Sola Scriptura, when I was saying the Bible alone is not sufficient for salvation. It was like me taking the Bible mm-hmm. and like kicking it or something. I, I, I felt that mm-hmm. dread. And it took me a moment to sort of push through to realize I was actually saying something more and bigger and greater about the Bible, something more and bigger and greater about faith. But those first feelings were were, were terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I, I fully relate, and I fully relate to what you're saying, that I'm, in my mind, I'm saying something even greater and richer about faith, as as will become clear, not something, not something diminished, not something cut down, chopped down, throttled, whatever, okay? 
Well, what we've done so far, okay, we've worked through a ton of material over the course of 10 episodes now in this series. And before moving on next week to describe the Catholic understanding of justification, okay, the flip side, um, and we'll spend one week, we might spend two on that. But before moving on to do that, I wanted to summarize as clearly as I can uh, the basic steps that led me away from this Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that we kind of put it all together into a package, although we've gone into great detail and many other, many other times together. Okay. So seven steps for seven, for, for spiritual perfection, as we used to say, right? Seven. Um, step one was this, and these are kind of chronological, but not entirely. Step one was noticing that throughout the Old Testament, stories of men and of women and their relationships with God, obedience was always presented as a condition for them receiving God's blessing, and never was this conceived as a problem. Okay, now, why is this important? Well, it's important because at, at the very heart of the Reformation understanding of salvation by grace is this belief that while obedience is something that is naturally going to follow in the life of the Christian, and of course is important, it should never, ever be conceived of as an actual condition for receiving the blessing of eternal life. After all, if this were the case, then salvation would be something we had earned, the, the, worst, the worst word you can conceive of, okay? Right. And to, to kind of put it in, mm -hmm. you know, the language that we would have understood, and I've heard it say, I heard it said like this, you know, in my own kind of debates on this topic, is yeah. that obedience is not something that you do to be saved. It's just something that saved people do. That's right. exactly right. right. <laughs> and in fact, right. in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, mm -hmm. these examples are of people who they are saved because they obey. Yeah. Yes. And we're going we're gonna to see some illustrations of this. But yes, you know, the dirtiest word that you could speak almost within my Reformed tradition was the word earned. And, and if obedience is conceived as a condition in any way, something required in, in any way and to any degree in order to enter eternal life, then you've earned your salvation. Then you have something in which to boast. Then God cannot be receiving all the glory. You know, the, the great work of salvation is no longer God's great work, but it's some work that is divided between, between us and God, okay? So this seems to make sense. And, and I'm telling you, I, I know in the Arminian world, maybe not exactly the same, but this equation that I have just sort of described, this is something that Protestants feel to their very bones. It's the heart of the Reformation view, or it's at the heart of the Reformation view of justification. And so I've got that in my mind. This is what I've learned. This is what I'm teaching too. And then I begin to notice that in all of these stories from the Old Testament about Old Testament saints, obedience is always presented as a condition for receiving God's blessing, and never does it seem to present this problem or entail all of these nasty implications. I mean, Noah has to trust God, and he has to build the ark. No problem. Abraham has to trust God, and he has to leave Ur of the Chaldees and follow. There's no issue with it. Moses and the Israelites, they have to trust God, and they have to sacrifice the Passover. They have to leave. They have to go through the Red Sea. They have to tramp through the wilderness for 40 years. No issue. Okay, so obedience is always presented in these stories as a condition for receiving the promised blessing. And here's what hit me the most. Again, I, I will state it. Never is there a hint that somehow this is destroying the graciousness of God's blessing, or that it's leading to boasting in the lives of these people. 
um, or that they've now earned God's blessing. Never any of these implications. Abraham, in fact, is described as the father of faith, right? And yet, when his life is summarized, when the final reason is given, if you will, as to why God is going to keep his covenant with Abraham, to bless his descendants, and to make them like the stars of heaven, notice the focus from Genesis 26. Sojourn in the land, God says to Isaac after Abraham's death. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And these are not obscure passages in the scriptures that you're pulling out no. and finding some, uh, you know, story of some Old Testament person who nobody's heard of and who who's nobody nobody's yeah, like, name they can pronounce. Yeah, like Bildad the Shuhite. Bildad the, the Shuhite or Eliphaz <laughs> no, or Zerubbabel no. or anything. No. These are in every these they make Veggie Tales videos about these people. Can these are no these the are the most primary, famous stories in the Bible. The, yes, the primary characters in the Old Testament. And what I'm saying this is step one. And what I'm saying here is that this is what originally got me thinking that maybe there was something wrong with the way that I was thinking about the, the whole issue of faith and obedience, grace and works, and how the two function together, okay? Step two then, moving forward, was coming to see that this Old Testament pattern illustrated in these lives, it wasn't something that is reversed in the New Testament. Instead, that it continued right on through from Matthew to Revelation. And again, without a hint of concern that somehow grace was being compromised. I mean, you read through the Gospels, and I think there's a reason that Reformation, uh, you know, focused Protestants spend way more time in Paul than they do in the Gospels. But you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly speaking of obedience as though it were required of those who would be blessed. If anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and follow me. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, he who hears my words and does them is like the man who builds his house upon the rock. I, I, mean, could, go, I could go on and on. But Jesus, you're not being particular. Can you spell it out for us a little bit more? I mean, it's yeah, pretty I, I, clear. I mean, it's everywhere, okay? And the same with the Apostle Paul. Now, I, I quote two passages. To those who by patience and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Or in Galatians 6, he who sows to the flesh from the flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And how do we do this, Paul? How do we do it? Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap the harvest of eternal life if we do not lose heart. Again, obedience is everywhere described then very naturally as a condition for receiving the blessing of the inheritance. And just like in the Old Testament, never is this presented as a problem. And what I mean by that is never do we find Jesus, never do we find Paul feeling the need to quick to quickly clarify what they have said, you know, you know, to, to quickly clarify. Oh, but of course, you know, I don't mean to be communicating to you that you, you actually have to take up your cross and follow me in order to receive the blessing. No, 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 don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm just saying that those who have been justified by faith alone will be the kind of people that will take up their cross and follow. You know, never do we find this kind of correction, no. this need to clarify, you know, need to, you know, cool down the impression being made. We just don't see it. Jesus just says flat out, 
if you do my commandments, you will remain in my love. And how much clearer does he have to spell it out for us than in Matthew 25, right? I mean, this is how we're judged. Uh, you know, the sheep and the goats are set to one side or the other based on whether or not they actually obeyed the commandments, yeah. uh, especially, specifically the ones having to do with the works of mercy. There, there are so many passages, and I'm just attempting to summarize a bit, but, he, but Hebrews 11 stood out, and you and I have talked about that a lot, because here the inspired author, he speaks of Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, and many others, a great number of Old Testament saints who trusted God and did what God commanded of them and received the promises. And here's the killer. He presents them as examples for you and I to imitate. In other words, he, he's saying to New Testament Christians, I want you to take all of these Old Testament men and women that I'm listing out for you here, I want you to take them as models so that you too can trust God and do what he commands and receive the promises just like they did. And I did the same thing in my sermons. And, and so I began to wonder, you know, why doesn't the author of Hebrews say, hey, here, here's, here's a list of men and women who are living uh, according to a damning system of works righteousness. Make sure you don't, uh, make sure you don't imitate them because they had to obey in order to be blessed, but now we don't. You know, well, Ken, so this is, this is something that is so important for us to make a distinction about because I was under the impression, and I don't know how I got it. Uh, I think it's just because of the way mm -hmm. that the Old Testament was talked about. Um, but that we have these stories from the Old Testament, so we know how not to be. And of course, we do. We all, but we also, and it became clear to me as I was coming to the same kind of mm -hmm. faith works epiphany that we have most more examples in the Old Testament of how to be than not to be. And when we do see examples in St. Paul or examples in uh, Jesus saying, this is how you don't be. We're looking at examples of where the Israelites were disobedient. Like, right. The, the only way that yeah. we're not supposed to be like them is in their disobedience. The ones that we're supposed to be like are Abraham. I mean, we see that all over Hebrews. We see that yeah. uh, in the writings of Paul. We do see examples of our ancestors who were living under who, who were living the wrong way, but the reason that they were living the wrong way was not because they were living in an imperfect covenant. It was because they were disobeying the orders that they had gotten, and therefore yeah. they were not they, they were not blessed. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, this sounds. Like, I feel stupid even saying this, Ken. Yeah, because <laughs> like, it, this it, is it sounds, so obvious. Well, yeah it it reminds me of those those articles you read that say studies have shown now that if you eat nothing but rocks. You know, you will not be healthy, that kind of thing. These kind of like patently obvious studies that come out. Well, it was the same thing for me too. Just the realization kind of dawning on me, why doesn't the author of Hebrews, I mean, if I believe that these Old Testament people who had to obey in order to be blessed were, as it were, um, the reverse of what we have now living under grace, quote unquote, then why why isn't the author of Hebrews saying here are some examples of people who had to obey in order to be blessed? We don't live like that, you know. They were good people in their own way, but they are not really a good example for us. And why didn't I say the same in my sermons? Instead, I was talking constantly about David and Daniel and Nehemiah and all these people and holding them even up Zerubbabel as models. Probably. Yeah, yes, even Zerubbabel. Even Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel built the temple up from the rubble. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's true. He and Nehemiah, Nehemiah, he was just slightly taller than Bildad the shoe height. Okay, that sounds like the title of a country song, you know, as yes. well built the temple. I'm distracting you again. I apologize. I, I, I know, but that's, uh, that's my lot in life.
So step one, then the Old Testament saints, obedience required and never isn't an issue. Step two is seeing that this continues on through the New Testament, obedience required, never is it presented as an issue. Okay. But what about everything that Paul says about how we are to be justified by faith alone, I mean, by faith in Christ and not by works in which a man might boast? Okay. This leads to step three and step four. Step three for me was coming to see, this is an important point. Well, they're all important, but coming to see that in the Bible, there are two kinds of obedience that are described for us. There are two kinds of works, one that is required by God and one that is condemned and rejected. Okay. First, there's the kind of obedience illustrated in the lives of people like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and so forth, all the saints listed in Hebrews 11. This is an obedience that flows naturally from humble faith. This kind of obedience is never set in opposition to faith in the Bible. In fact, this kind of obedience is viewed as basically interchangeable with faith. Because Abraham believed God, he got up and left. Okay? Because Noah believed God, he got down to Lowe's and he picked up tons and tons of gopher wood and he got to work. Okay? This kind of obedience is viewed as being the flip side of one coin with faith. It's interchangeable with faith. Okay, but then there's another kind of obedience described throughout the Bible. This is the kind of obedience, Matt, that we can see described in passages like Isaiah chapter 1, where God comes out blasting his people Israel, or the leadership of Israel too, and saying, I have had enough of your burnt offerings and the fat of fed beasts. Bring no more vain offerings to me. Your incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons, your your festivals, my soul hates them. Okay? These people now, here's the important thing. These people were obedient, you could say. I mean, they were performing works. They were performing works that had been commanded by God in the law of Moses. But somehow, their obedience is the very opposite of obedience. Their obedience is the opposite of obedience. Somehow their obedience was bad. Somehow God hates their obedience. And this is why. It wasn't the humble obedience of a Noah or an Abraham or a Moses. It wasn't the humble obedience that flowed from faith. It was instead a prideful obedience, the prideful obedience of someone who says, I keep the Sabbath. I tithe my mint, dill, and cumin. I bear the covenant sign of circumcision. I am a member of the chosen race. I am in like flame. I earned it. I earned it, right? I mean, essentially. There's the earning. There's the earning attitude. In fact, I think that this attitude, this second attitude we're describing now, I think that it is epitomized really in something that John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and Sadducees in his day. When he said this, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Rather, he goes on, you know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let me let me boil this down. In, in short, Matt, it was becoming clear to me that in the prophets, in the preaching of John the Baptist, in the preaching of our Lord, Matthew 23, woe unto you, the tithing, the mint, the dill, and all that, the contrast being drawn in Scripture again and again, it was never a contrast between faith and and obedience. The contrast being drawn throughout Scripture was between those who loved God, 
trusted him and walked in his ways, faith and obedience, Noah, Abraham, Hebrews 11, and those who did not love God really and did not really walk in his ways, but instead said to themselves, because I am a descendant of Abraham, because I bear the covenant sign, because I am careful to keep the Sabbath and to tithe, and I'm careful to wash every pot and dish and all of that kind of thing, I have it made with God. That is the contrast that we find in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in all of the prophets, in John the Baptist, in Jesus. And this leads us to step four, because this is sort of this is a very important point for understanding New Testament theology. What I was coming to see is that this is the exact contrast that the Apostle Paul has in mind when he speaks again and again of how we are saved by grace through faith and not works, lest any man should boast. This is the contrast that he has in mind. Now, I'm, I'm summarizing here, and so I can only give a mere sketch, and I, I would encourage anyone who's listening and interested, go back, listen to episodes four and five, especially this on this series, point. yeah, in this yeah. particular series. So damning part four and damning part five. You're really just trying to drive up tap, traffic for those archived episodes. <laughs> well, I mean, if you just want to hear the full case, because I can just give a mere sketch now, but here's my mere sketch of what I'm saying here or why I'm saying this. In short, Throughout Paul's ministry, Paul was dealing with certain Jewish believers, believers, primarily from the Pharisaic background, who were insisting that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they needed to receive circumcision and they needed to begin to live by the Mosaic Code. Essentially, they needed to become Jewish proselytes. They needed to become Jews. This is what the church was dealing with in its very first council of Christian history, described in Acts 15. This is what Paul was dealing with throughout his ministry. And here, here's the point. Within this historical context, when Paul says we're justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, Paul isn't saying, hey, you guys, while Noah and Abraham and Moses and all the saints listed in Hebrews 11, while they had to obey God in order to be blessed, we don't. He's not saying that. What Paul is saying in these contexts is, in order to be saved, you do not have to become Jews and live according to the laws of Moses. This, in fact, this is why, in the exact context where Paul speaks most strongly about justification by faith and not works of the law, we find him talking constantly in those contexts about the circumcision party, about those who trust in the flesh about those dogs, those evil workers, those mutilators of the flesh who are trying to get you to be, to be circumcised. And All of again, these subjects come just up. To, just to bring it back around, when Paul talks about the flesh in those cases, he's not talking about your fleshly uh, desires for lust and anger and greed and everything. He's talking about a specific kind of flesh that gets mutilated in a specific way as part of a ritual that the Judaizers are trying to get every male to undergo. Yeah, and I, I remember watching this Cadillac commercial one time on TV where they're showing how smooth the Cadillac ride is, and what they have is a rabbi in the back seat performing the circumcision. <laughs> he, can, he, can, he can take care of it in the back of the Cadillac, yeah. right. Okay, well, this is why, though— Thank you for that, Ken. Uh, yeah, this is why, in, the, in, in those contexts where Paul speaks so strongly about justification by faith, not works of the law, this is why he, for some reason, is always talking about circumcision and those who are trying to get you to be circumcised. This is also why, the flip side, this is why we find Paul in those same contexts 
working constantly to convince his Jewish readers that their Jewishness isn't the thing that matters with God. And then this is why in the classic passage, Romans 3.28, where Paul announces that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, this is why we find him immediately, in the very next verse, asking the rhetorical question, or is God the God of Jews only? It's just clear that when Paul says works of the law, he is thinking of Jewish stuff, Jewishness, the Mosaic Code. That's what he's got in mind. So in, in short, what I was coming to believe here was that in Paul's struggle against the Judaizers, Paul wasn't saying anything different than what Isaiah said, or Jeremiah, or John the Baptist, or Jesus. Quit saying to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, is basically the summarization of what Paul was saying in those contexts. We are saved by faith in Christ, not by being able to say we have Abraham for our father. Or as Galatians puts it in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this three times, but I'll just put it together into one, one, one point. It isn't circumcision that matters to God, nor is it uncircumcision that matters to God, Paul says. What matters is faith working through love. What matters is having become a new creation in Christ. And what matters, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, is keeping the commandments of God. And to bring it back around, that idea of faith working through love. The problem that we have with so many of these splinter groups that come off in the Reformation and beyond is because they take those things and they emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. And we even see it in the present day with mainline, uh, you know, progressive things who say, you know, even the faith and the work don't matter. It's the love, you know, right. you can't separate the faith from the work and the love. You can't separate the work from the love and the faith. You can't separate the mm -hmm. love from the faith and the work. It's never meant to be three different categories of thing. It's all meant to be. It, just like you One. can't separate the Father and the Son from the Spirit. You know, you can't do it. It's This is this holistic, this whole kind of beautiful thing that God is handing down to us and revealing. Amen, so. yes. Faith and obedience. You, you don't separate faith, love, obedience. That's why sometimes we read in the New Testament, what's that passage where Christ will return to those who love him? You know, passages like that, you know, which pick out other aspects rather than always saying faith, you know to those who obey him, to those who love him. It's all interchangeable. Okay, now step five for me. In the middle of this whole situation, I learned that the conception of justification that I had as legal imputation was brand new with Luther and Melanchthon, Calvin and the rest, that it had never been even conceived in the first 1500 years of Christian history. And I learned this from one of the most well-respected Protestant theologians the Oxford professor, Alistair McGrath. Now, this was a crucial step for me, Matt. I mean, really crucial, because for years, I had been struggling with the tension that I felt between seeing in Scripture this you know, faith and obedience as the condition for receiving the inheritance, and seeing how clear that was, and believing that, and then holding a view of justification that told me that everything was done at the moment I first believed. You know, that at the moment I first believed, when I was 22 years old, let's say, or even earlier, Christ's perfect righteousness was legally credited to my account. I was forgiven for all sins I had committed, would commit, would ever commit in the future, that it was a done deal. You know, so on the one hand, I've got this view of justification that says, I'm saved. It was done the moment I first believed. 
And then I've got this pattern that is emerging and so beautiful in Scripture of faith and obedience resulting in the blessing of God. And so in this tension I'm living, and now I hear that this entire conception of justification was new at the time of the Reformation. This led me, obviously, to want to re-examine the biblical evidence for this conception that I held and have been taught. Because I, I began to wonder, how strong could the evidence be for it when it takes 1500 years 1500 years for someone to see it in the and bible especially as we we've remarked in previous episodes especially if this is being argued by people who also say that the meaning of scripture is clear to anyone who reads it well if it's clear to anyone who reads it then how come 1500 years go by and yeah. luther's the first so yeah yeah yes you have a kind of a circular deal here it, it doesn't make sense you have a contradiction forming you know, that we can look to Scripture alone because it's clear. Remember that? Remember in the Sola Scriptura series, that phrase we, re, we we quoted from Protestant scholars again and again, the Bible, nothing more, nothing, nothing else, else. nothing less. less is all that is needed. Okay, so the Bible's clear. It's all that is needed, and it takes 1,500 years for a Christian theologian to find this conception of justification. Actually, it's it's all it's it's technically you know not the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. It's the Bible, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. And my tapes, right? <laughs> that's, that's usually my, how it goes. My personal interpretation. Okay, right. so this leads to step six, beginning to examine the biblical evidence. Step six was examining the evidence for the doctrine of imputation in the Old Testament first, and finding it completely absent. That is the idea of Im- of imputation. When I looked at the Old Testament sacrificial system, which really is the main image that we have in the Old Testament of how sin is dealt with, the sacrificial system. The Specifically was, and especially the Day of Atonement. Yeah, and the message was quite simple. A sacrifice is offered, making atonement for sin, for the sin committed. Sins are forgiven, and that's it, right? There isn't a hint that somehow righteousness is legally credited to the account of the confessing sinner or anything like that. So in the sacrificial system, you don't see it. And then when I looked at statements made by Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, describing what God would do in the future when he established a new covenant to solve the problem of his people's inability to love him and keep his commandments, when I looked at those statements, again, the message was pretty straightforward. God will make atonement for their sins, the sacrifice of Christ now in the new covenant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He will make atonement for their sins, and he will forgive their sins. And then here's a key. Here's something really new about the new covenant. He will change their hearts, and he will give them the ability to do what they could not do, to love him and keep his commandments and live. This might seem like a, a, a weird distinction and, and, and hair-splitting, but there is something very different between overlooking someone's sins and forgiving their sins, and that is the difference here. Overlooking someone's sins is—I mean, that's, that's a very nice and polite thing for you to do, and it's a merciful thing to do, but forgiving someone's sins and giving them a new heart— yeah. I mean, this is what's this is what's at stake here. Uh, I mean, we're we're a new creation, and this is promise. And you're like I say, your favorite passage from Ezekiel, you know, sprinkling clean water on you, uh, you know, taking out your heart of stone, replacing mm-hmm. it with a heart mm-hmm. of flesh. I mean, that's not that's not just you know, I'm not going to 
hold these things against you. It's I'm going to forgive you. I mean, that's a very different kind of thing. Yes. And, and so, you know, theology is like a seamless garment. You've heard it said, and everyone says careful. Now we're going to get comments about the, that seamless garment stuff in the, in the, well, I'm not talking about the pro-life thing right, right now. I'm talking about theology as a whole though, is a seamless garment. And as soon as you say that, I start thinking about the doctrine of the atonement, which I would like to talk about in a couple of future ep- episodes. But yeah, there's a big difference between that. But let me summarize, though. I'm looking at the Old Testament teaching then, and I'm noticing that what we have in the sacrificial system, and then what we have in the pronouncements of the Old Testament prophets about what the new covenant would bring, is we have atonement made for sin, a sacrifice offered, and atonement will be made, and sins will be forgiven, and then God will change his people's hearts so that they will have the ability to to do what they couldn't do before. That is to love him, to keep his commandments, and live. And I'm thinking here of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where Moses said, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. And then just a portion of Jeremiah 31, the, the classic passage, where we read, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Here it is. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I cut out a few words because it's kind of long, but you see what I'm saying though? It's atonement made for sin, forgiveness, and the changing of a person's heart. That is what the Old Testament teaches. Not a word here, nothing in the law or the prophets about, here's how the problem of sin is going to be dealt with. Perfect righteousness is going to be legally credited to your account, and you will be therefore justified in the sight of God. And again, not to, people might think this is a weird and, and unimportant distinction, and we're just getting into the theological weeds, but there's a large difference between God giving us the grace to do the things he has always been calling us to do versus God saying, you're never going to do this stuff anyway, so I'm just going to <laughs> yeah, fill in the blanks. Yeah, you don't have to. You know, yeah, right. you can't do it, so you don't have to. Instead, Jesus did it, and Jesus is doing it is is going to be credited to your account, and you don't have to. You know, yeah. And no, every parent kind of understands difference. this. Every parent kind of understands this. When you're a kid, you maybe fill in the blanks for something that your kid can't do. Yeah. But the whole goal is relationship and growth and getting your kid to that place where the kid can do it. You know, you're not going to stand stand yeah. by them the whole time and just be there you know, throughout yeah. their life and being like, ah, well, you can't do this anyway, so I'm just going to pay the bill. There's, I know there's so much to say about this. It, it, it's like, okay, I look at you, Matt, when you're like four years old. Okay, you can't push the lawn more. You can't mow the lawn, so I'll just mow the lawn. No, instead, I put your hands on the bars. I stand behind you and I walk along with you and teach you how to mow and I help you to where you grow and over time you are mowing the lawn. But you, by the step. way, you never would have been able to mow the lawn without the grace that was imparted to you through that relationship that you had with your, oh, that's your, right. your father, you know? I mean, this that's right. It, you're not mowing it on your own because you're just some brilliant mower. Right. You know? And it doesn't detract from my glory as a father either. No, it I mean, shows, shines forth your glory. Like, I taught him to do that. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine saying to your, to your kids, I mean, this is off the track here, but it's not. Imagine saying to your kids, okay, look, you guys, I want to make sure as your father that I receive all the glory so I will clean the house and I will paint the house and I will mow the lawn and I will do all the weeding. And I want you to sit on that couch and just watch TV so that I get all the glory. No, that father gets no glory. The way in which the father gets glory in his sons is as he feeds life into them, brings them up, trains them. And if you will, when he's sitting on the couch watching football 
and they're doing everything. You're like, I taught him to do that. Yeah. That's but, my but, boy. That's my boy. But anyway, we're getting into the whole thing about how glory he works. He has the, like, I taught him that uh, zigzag mo pattern where it makes a perfect grid like the baseball outfield, you know? That's right. Where it looks, I taught him that. Looks, looks beauteous. Okay. So that's the Old Testament. Step seven for me then was concluding that the evidence for the doctrine of imputation in the New Testament was no better than it was in the Old Testament. And talk about not being able to get into the details of it. I can only say, people, you've got to listen to past episodes if you want to hear the case that I would make for that. But I found, looking at it through the eyes of the Old Testament and everything else, and asking the question, where really is the solid evidence for this doctrine that in justification, righteousness is legally transferred to our account, that kind of thing? And I found it to be no better than in the Old Testament. And here's the thing, there are a growing number of Protestant Protestant New Testament scholars who are admitting this, this very thing, this very truth. I quote one of them here, the doctrine that Christ's righteousness is imputed to, the, to believing sinners needs to be abandoned. That's a New Testament Protestant scholar and author. Quoting again, the doctrine of imputation is not even biblical, he says. Still less is it essential to the gospel. And, and now, I want to make sure that false impressions are not taken from what I'm saying here. Yes, justification is through faith in Christ. That's how we're justified. Yes, justification is described as God's gift to us. It's not something we earn. Yes, in justification, one is declared. It's a, there's a declarative aspect. God is declaring us to be his righteous ones, to be righteous in his sight. But it doesn't follow from any of this that justification should be conceived as the legal crediting of righteousness to those who believe. Just Much less follow. all the doctrines that flow forth from that in Reformed theology, which there are many yeah. that hinge on this particular point and then draw all kinds of conclusions that get it further and further off the path uh, from, well, we'll get to that in, we'll get to that in future episodes. Yeah, and... So here's the thing that really hit me on this too, is that when Paul describes, when Paul actually describes the righteous, how the righteousness requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, which is kind of the question we're asking, right? You know, God's law requires um, obedience to love God with all our heart and to walk in his commandments. And because we're sinners, we can't. Because we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. When Paul actually describes how the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us, he doesn't say through the legal imputation of righteousness, the legal crediting. Instead, Paul talks about how the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death so that the righteous requirements of the law, Paul says, are fulfilled in us as we walk by the spirit, which sounds a lot like that passage in Ezekiel that you quoted, I will wash you, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you. Or Moses saying, I will circumcise your heart so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart and keep his commandments and live. Paul says, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us as we walk according to the Spirit. It sounds even like in Genesis, Enoch, who walked with the Lord and was no more, that perfect relationship with God, that uh, it sounds more like a relationship than it does like a courtroom. It just does. Yeah. Um, oh, but Ken, 
You know what? It's, I, it, it's so hard to talk about these subjects because they lead everywhere. But where, I know. What were you going to say, Ken? What? But I'm looking at the clock, Ken, and we can't. We just can't go any more places okay. this episode. But I will say this: that we're pushing something like 30 episodes of on the journey, and there's some people who are saying, "All right, Mister Smarty McSmart Pants, when are you going to talk about what the Catholic Church believes and stop just banging on what how Reformed theology isn't right?" <laughs> so we're getting there, right? Yeah. So what is the Catholic view of justification? Okay, Reformed pastor. John MacArthur, very famous out here, he has referred to the Catholic teaching as a damning system of works righteousness. He has said that it is not hair-splitting to talk about the differences between the two. One of them is correct and brings a soul to heaven, and one of them is a damning system of works righteousness. So and send what, you to hell what, to fry like a buck out of chicken, right. What is the Catholic view? That's where we're going to turn our attention next week. All right, so stay, stay tuned. tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, there's a lot to cover, and hopefully you're getting something out of this. At least Ken's getting a little catharsis out of it, so that's good. In the meantime, if you're enjoying On the Journey, then definitely subscribe, uh, share it with your friends, come see us at the Coming Home Network, chnetwork.org. Go check out previous episodes as well. We've got uh, plenty in the archives, and we'd love to hear from you. Maybe you're on a similar journey. Maybe uh, you've got some questions. Uh, either fill in in the comments, or if the comments are a little too public for you, then uh, check out the CH Network, the Coming Home Network online community. If you go to chnetwork.org and click on Connect, you can get into our online community that's sort of kind of a closed private place for people to discuss such things. So in the meantime, thank you for being with us. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thank you, thank you for being with us. We'll talk to you here in just a little bit next week. Yep, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Matt.